0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is time for The Naked Scientist. 11 883 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702 for you to get your science-related questions in. Uh, Dr. Chris, how are you doing? I'm in good shape. How are you? I am fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And before we kick off by going to all of the callers, I saw somewhere... Um, I need to be able to find it. But it was speaking about the fact that apparently there is technology or it's possible to retrieve sperm from somebody who has already died. So you can make a dead person a father. Is this true? Well,
1: there's several ways to go about this. Um, One of them, which the law has been unsure of but has received some clarity recently, is around frozen sperm because you can put sperm and eggs on ice although actually it's liquid nitrogen at about minus 200 degrees but you can keep it viable in that state for decades so one way to make someone a father even after they've died is to go to frozen sperm that's absolutely possible and has been done and there's nothing wrong with that in terms of uh, raising children healthily from that source of sperm ethically there have been some court cases about it because it all concerns consent doesn't it yes. would the person have given their consent when they di- when they've died is is there any control still exerted etc so it's it's not a straightforward case the other way of doing this is that when a person has recently died or passed away it is possible still to retrieve sperm from the testes sperm is made at the rate of 5,000 to 10,000 sperm every second in a man's testes and there's a ready supply of it sitting there so you can extract the sperm you can also extract immature sperm from the testis. And you can. We often do this actually in people who have subfertility or infertility for whatever reason. You can sometimes extract sperm this way and then use it for a procedure called ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. The embryologist will take a, an egg, look down the microscope, and they can take a sperm and inject it into that egg, fooling it into thinking it's been fertilised the normal way, and then the egg turns into an embryo. That's possible. So it's also possible to do that in someone who has died, but died recently. You couldn't do it after a while because, of course, the tissues will begin to deteriorate. But again, it comes down to ethics. If a person's given their consent for that to happen, then there's no reason why you couldn't follow their wishes and there's no reason why that wouldn't result in a successful pregnancy. I don't think it's what we call mainstream, though. I don't think lots of people are racing to do this, but there are circumstances where someone's lost a partner or is losing a partner. They desperately wanted children. The opportunity didn't arise when they were alive. Therefore, their expressed wish is that the partner should be able to have children with them even after they have died what who's to stop them
0: and that that one is the one that's called the post-mortem sperm retrieval which as i understand the sperm cells can live up to 72 hours after a person has died wow yeah
1: yeah Uh, i mean the tissue when when a person dies it doesn't mean that every single cell in their body is instantly dead when a person dies it just means that the cells in the body stop working together as one organism and the system begins to fall to pieces because of course everything depends on everything else to keep a body healthy but there will be individual cells that remain viable for extended periods of time and sperm are pretty resilient as cells go because if you think about it they've got, to, they've got to cope with existence in different tissues and different structures in the body and in someone else's body they've got to cope with a different chemical environment because when they go inside the woman the woman's reproductive tract is very acidic mm. and that's there to suppress the growth of other nasty bacteria and yeasts that's how it keeps itself healthy the sperm have to cope with that and they also have to be able to cope with having no food supply for a long period of time so they pick up things from the environment to keep themselves alive so sperm are pretty resilient cells by by virtue of the fact of what they've got to do what their job is so yes yes, unsurprisingly they can remain viable for a long period of time
0: all right let's go to the lions we've got anthony and oak dean hi anthony hi good afternoon how are you this afternoon good thanks and you i'm not too bad thank you thank you for taking my call go ahead uh dr chris good afternoon hope you are well um if you can answer this question it'll be appreciated um i just wanted to know um is it standard to bury the dead six feet below um if yes when and how was this uh, benchmark set Thank you very much. Thank you, Anthony. Can you, so, can you six, just say the question again? So he said, "Um, um, this the, the the issue of people being buried six feet below is that correct? And when did it right. get decided, and why, basically?" I don't know who would have
1: come up with that. I mean, it, it's um, one of those things that people just say, but I'm not sure that that it's standard everywhere, is it? I mean, I've I've seen people under extreme circumstances where they couldn't be buried six feet below, but I think it probably comes down to some kind of early statute where they didn't want people being dug up again because there would have been scavengers, there would have been dogs and so on and so people had obviously decided you put people this deep down and then the scavengers don't get them up again and that probably stuck from you know ages ago and, and it became the, the, the de facto thing that people do but I, I don't know the answer to be honest.
0: Okay, alright uh, thank you so much Anthony for that question let's go to Hink in Mayerton, hi Hink Hi Yes, go ahead Hink Oh, thank you, Uh, Dr. Chris. I just want to find out, has anyone ever invented a motorcycle powered by diesel? And if not, is it possible to do it? Mm. Hi,
1: Hank. Uh, I haven't seen a motorcycle, but I have seen a quad bike. And the answer is there's no reason why you couldn't do this. I strongly suspect someone has done this. The downside of doing this is motorcycles are attractive because they are lightweight and they have a really good power-to-weight ratio. And under those circumstances, diesel does not fit those criteria. Diesel engines weigh twice to three times as much as petrol engines because they have to be built to to much higher tolerances because the compression in a diesel engine is really really high and as a result of that you have to use thicker bits of metal and stronger materials to withstand that and so weight is an issue if you've got more weight on board then the machine is harder to control it's less agile and although the diesel engine is going to be a lot more efficient in the long run and therefore i've seen people build quads for farms and that kind of thing using one they're quite slow and the acceleration is lower. And although they're very torquey, they've got lots of power at low speeds in the engine. That's not really what you want from a motorcycle. You need agile performance in order to make them manoeuvrable and to give them the attractive things that, that features that they have. So while it is perfectly possible to make a diesel motorbike, I think the market would be relatively small. I'm sure someone's done it, but the, the quad bikes that were made to run on diesel... With the farm market in mind, didn't really take off either physically or metaphorically. They weren't that popular, and I think that that's the reason. Really, they're quite slow and sluggish, and quite noisy as well. And it just wasn't worth it.
0: All right. So, thank you so much, Hink, for your question. Sandy in Tembisa. Hi. Hi guys. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks. And you? I'm um, good. Thanks. Um, My question is, Dr. Chris, um, that I just wanted to have more information regarding the James Webb telescope and the fact that it orbits nothing. How is that possible?
1: Just repeat that again, Sandile? Uh, uh, You know, I I know what you mean. It's in a Lagrange point, (laughs) isn't it? That's what what you're referring to is that the James Webb telescope is parked in space. Mm. And and it's parked in such a way that it's not moving. Now, what they've done, these so-called Lagrange points are points of gravitational balance where the tug they get in one direction from, say, the Sun, and the tug they get in another direction from the Earth, they balance each other out so that the telescope is effectively staying static in space. So rather than it have to park itself use fuel to move around and get a changing sort of skyscape it can stare easily in in a direction you're pointing it in and it doesn't disturb itself and it doesn't get pulled around or or move around and those are called lagrange points these points of gravitational neutrality
0: thank you so so much sandila for that question julian boxberg hi hi hello yes go ahead julia how are black holes formed Hmm. Thank you, Julia. Julia, the
1: answer to your question is uh, black holes are points in space with a huge mass that's so great it deforms the fabric of space so that not even light can escape because when light goes past something big, it bends and black holes bend space so much that the light cannot escape. They normally form when something very, very massive, in other words, with a lot of stuff in it, collapses in on itself, and usually that means a, a giant star. So one way in which black holes form is from early on in the universe when there were enormous stars like our sun, but a million times our sun, when they get to the end of their life, they collapse in on themselves because the nuclear reaction that's blowing the sun up and puffing it up like a balloon, it stops working. And so the whole material races inwards and thunders into this catastrophic collapse. And that leaves behind a black hole. And so the answer is a star died to make a black hole.
0: All right, let's take a break. We're going to come and cont- uh, come back to the lines on 0 double one double eight three oh seven zero two and the WhatsApp messages as well O727021702 When we come back, seven zero two. The Naked Scientist. We're still with Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Oh double one double eight three oh seven zero two and the WhatsApp line oh seven two seven zero two one seven zero two. Let's go to Thomas in Timbisa. Hi, Thomas. I, I, I know, then, yes, I'm just going to confirm about the lunar eclipse and solar eclipse. I just want to know, how do they know that uh, they are going to take place in a certain year, date and time? Okay. Uh, doctor, did you get that?
1: I couldn't understand the first bit of the question. So the, the, the lunar
0: so and solar eclipses, how do you know that they, when exactly they're going to take place?
1: Ah, right. Okay. Well, because the Earth is following a predictable pattern around the sun we know what the earth's orbit is and we know how the moon moves around the earth We can plot and therefore predict its course with great accuracy. You can calculate with some maths exactly when the two are going to coincide because we know what the path of the sun is because of the earth going around the sun. We know what the path of the moon is and you can run your simulation of one moving relative to the other forward in time until you reach a point where you know that relative to a certain point on the earth's surface the two are going to overlap and you're going to see an eclipse.
0: All right, uh, let's quickly go to the WhatsApp messages. One says, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Chris, I'd like to know what would happen if a million litres of liquid nitrogen was poured on top of an active voca- volcano that's about to erupt. That's from Thomas Kaaba in Stinkwater.
1: Hello, Thomas. The answer to this one is liquid nitrogen is at about minus 200 degrees C. A hot, erupting volcano is probably in the region of about 4,000 C. So there's a lot more energy in the volcano than there is in the liquid nitrogen. But the liquid nitrogen would have the effect of cooling down some of the rock temporarily that was erupting out of the volcano. So it would rob energy away from the hot rock. This would turn the nitrogen liquid into gas very, very quickly And when you turn liquid into a gas, it gets about a thousand times bigger. So I I would predict if you took a million litres of liquid nitrogen and you put that in a volcano, in probably a fraction of a second, you would probably get a billion litres of nitrogen gas. So in other words, quite explosive release of gas. And it would come out very, very fast and very, very hot, which would probably cause an explosion around the volcano. But it would cool the rock down in the process. And that might then cause some trapping of more volcanic gases underneath, which would then belch out and and split apart and make another sort of volcanic explosion underneath. So that would be the answer. You would basically turn the liquid nitrogen into nitrogen gas in a very fast rate of time and cause uh, an explosion.
0: All right, uh, the next question uh, that comes through is from Mbex in Pretoria, who says, Can you please ask Dr. Chris, is it possible to trap lightning and convert it into electricity? And their second question, why is rainfall measured in millimetres instead of millilitres like all other liquids?
1: Well, on the rainfall measurement idea, the, the point is you're measuring the amount of water that would fall to raise the height of water above one square metre of the ground. It's just the convention. And in order to make sure that people are recording rainfall consistently everywhere, it's important that we all work to the same unit. And that's why the ancient weathermen, weatherwomen, decided that that was going to be how they were going to document it. That is the way in which we record rainfall. Um, The other question, the first one was what, sorry?
0: So the first one was, is it possible to trap lightning lightning. and convert it to electricity? Yeah.
1: Yeah. This this can be done if you wanted to. Lightning is high-voltage electricity. It's made by particles of ice rubbing against each other in a cloud in the same way as if you take a balloon and rub it on your head. You build up static charge on the balloon and you can stick it to the wall or the ceiling. When you rub ice crystals together inside clouds, they also take charges with them and for some reason we don't really understand the plus ones go up and the minus ones go down so you get a charge at the bottom of the cloud versus the top of the cloud this creates a potential difference between the cloud base and the earth's surface and when the potential difference creates an electric field of sufficient strength to break down the insulation of the air then you will discharge the energy from the cloud ...onto the Earth's surface and that's what we see as lightning as it comes threading down through an ionised or bit of Earth's atmosphere... ...that's had the electrons ripped away from the atoms so that you get this charged conduit through which the electricity can can flow. The problem is that while there's a lot of energy in there, probably 1 to 10 billion joules of energy in every lightning strike it's unpredictable as exactly where it's going to happen. We know that there might be a lightning storm with reasonable prospect in a certain area, and we know it tends to happen from time to time, but how do you actually sustainably and reproducibly and in a useful way tap into that source of energy? Well, you could do if you had some kind of lightning conductor that you knew was always going to get hit, but it doesn't work like that. Although sometimes you will get lots of strikes to one particular area, months may go by before the storm comes back and you happen to do that again. But you could indeed create some kind of distortion in the electric field, some lightning conductor-like affair, which would be hit, the electricity would flow through it, and you could then push that into a capacitor or some storage system that would enable you to store the charge. But given that about a billion to 10 billion joules of electricity would run a 100-watt light bulb for about three or four months, it's not a huge amount of energy per lightning bolt that's useful. And therefore, you've got to spend a lot of effort, energy and money making a way to capture lightning and then store it. You've probably, in doing that, used more energy and had a bigger carbon footprint than the energy you save by harvesting the lightning, given the unpredictability of being able to do that. So, yes, theoretically possible but definitely not very useful.
0: All right, uh, let's quickly go to Tabo and Wendy. Tabo, short and sharp, we don't have much time. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Naked scientist, and uh, you, my sister, there. Eh? Can you hear me? Tabo, we can hear you, and you, you've already yes, used 15 seconds. Ask Please ask go quickly. Just quickly a question. You know, when I'm with my wife at Gryffindor Mall, there is, um, you know, when you walk, you create friction, yeah? Yes. The body creates friction to the floor. So, but when I'm at Greenstone, only in Greenstone, so we choke, I'm choking here. What What could be the cause? Only in Greenstone. Oh, uh, okay. I, go I, 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 yeah. I got you. Tabo, uh, uh, Dr. Chris, so you know, when black people in South Africa say choking, we mean an electric shock. Not the choke yeah. that's strangling. <laughs> but that's how we speak. We say, you choked me. You so so obviously he's saying yeah. that. Why is it specifically more <laughs> static there?
1: Yeah, uh, it comes down to what you're wearing and what she's wearing. You, When you move around will build up a static charge on your body or your partner will build up a static charge on their body and certain types of footwear will make this worse because certain types of footwear which are badly insulating or, sorry, badly conducting will enable you to build up charge on your body or your partner may build up charge on their body and then when you touch each other, you will get an electric shock because your voltage is different to their voltage because of the relatively different accumulations of charge. A current will flow... And that's when you get the electric shock. So it's down to actually what you're wearing and doing the effectively rubbing a balloon on your head to build up static charge. You're doing that with your whole body and insulating yourself from your ground through, your, through from the ground through your footwear.
0: We're gonna to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Christmas.